Modern life has a lot of marvels, doesn't it? Uh, I'm particularly fond of air conditioning. <laughs> I heard the other day that we're potentially going to start space tourism as well, which is exciting, but um, I think possibly the greatest modern marvel, at least as it applies to my life, is the GPS app on your phone. Uh, for someone who can't find his way out of a wet paper bag, this thing is golden. Right? I just put my destination in there, and a the little blue triangle tells me exactly where I'm supposed to go. It's like I have my GPS app, and I all of a sudden turn to Magellan. I can go anywhere and know where I'm going. So this is a good thing. Um, as I go to Dallas, right, my, my GPS and the modern marvel of it kind of falls apart, though. Uh, so if you've, if you've been there, first of all, there's like eight roads that are all like in one area, right? And they're all overlapping on each other. So my little blue line does me no good. And not only that, but if you go up and you look at the little green sign that's supposed to tell you the name of the road, uh, Dallas has very helpfully decided to get creative and change the name of the road like every few months. So whatever Google has as the name of the road, there is no sign of that road anywhere in Dallas. And so my, uh, I turn in from like Magellan to back to my clueless self who has no idea where I'm going and what do I end up doing? Well, I kind of guess, right? And I'm like, that blue line looks like it's trying to make me go that way and I take the wrong exit and then what do you have to do? You have to backtrack, circle back, get back on and then try again, right? And then that's the wrong one too. And so you backtrack, circle back and then try again. And eventually, right, you get there. Uh, some of you are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I actually have a sense of direction and good on you. But for the rest of us, this is an issue, right? And yet, staying on what Proverbs calls the, the straight path, the way of life, uh, kind of feels like this for most of us, doesn't it? It doesn't just feel like this, it is like this for most of us. We're following the line, and then we, we start to veer. And what we're going to see, and what we've already heard in Proverbs this morning, is the, the call right, to circle back, to get back on the path, right? and then potentially veer again, right? But instead of staying on the path of destruction, you know, well, I got off the path, I guess I'm stuck here, it's going to continue to call us to circle back onto the path of life, to follow the, the path of life into flourishing and goodness. Because while it is called the straight path, the reality is that for us, the path of life is full of wrong turns. It's full of wrong turns, or what I like to call discipleship drift. Now, this is what we do as disciples. We, we typically, not, sometimes we just make a boneheaded decision to decide, I'm going to get off the path today. What happens more often as Christians is we just kind of start drifting off the path, right? And then all of a sudden we look up and we realize we're going in an entirely different direction. And the longer we go, the further we get away from the path of life. All right? So a lot of this can be with, with good things, right? Uh, things that just take our attention away from Christ. A lot of this can be with, with bad things, with sinful choices that we make. But I love the example that John Bunyan gives in his work, Pilgrim's Progress, right? where the, the main character, Christian, is on a journey, and he encounters all of these stumbling blocks, right? all of these trip-ups uh, that either distract him or get him off of, his, of the course of his destination. Um, and yet, what does he do? He constantly is coming back onto the path, right? He currently, he's, he's constantly going, setting his eyes back on the destination to get back on the path of life and the way of wisdom. And we're all this way, aren't we? We're all travelers and pilgrims. Along the way of our lives, as we seek to follow the path of wisdom, we encounter temptations and trials and distractions. 
And the call of Proverbs and the call of Christ is to come back onto the path of wisdom. Because small turns make large distances. Right? If you've ever gotten lost before, you know this. The longer you go on the wrong way, the longer it's going to take right, to, to get back. The greater the consequences are going to be. If you immediately circle back, not so bad. I speak as someone with a lot of experience, as you can tell, in being lost. But if you keep going boneheadedly right, and say, no, no, I'll, figure, I'll get back on track eventually. I'll just keep going this way and kind of see what happens. You're in for a long ride, aren't you? And this is why Proverbs in uh, the coming weeks is going to cover so many different kinds of sins. And quite frankly, a lot of them that, as we read, they don't really seem like they're worth the ink on the page. Like, why are you talking so much about gossip? Like, what about all these bigger sins? Right? I mean, we've got so much going on in the world, so many injustices, so much oppression, right? You've got genocide and all these things. Proverbs, why are you worried about gossip? And yet, we see that these small turns, right, these, these little temptations into things like gossip have massive repercussions. Gossip has broken many a family, hasn't it? Gossip has uprooted many a church from her mission. It begins with these little things that Proverbs is going to point out to us and call us to return to the path before the damage is done. Another example in Proverbs that it speaks a lot about is greed. In America, we, we almost encourage greed, don't we? This is what we set out to do, right? Provide, make money, contribute to the economy. And yet Proverbs has many warnings for us. For example, chapter 23, verse 4 and 5, don't wear yourself out to get rich because you know better. Stop. As soon as your eyes fly to it, it disappears, for it makes wings for itself and flies like an eagle to the sky. The results of greed range from family catastrophes, right, abandoned children, to more national catastrophes like housing bubbles, right? Greed has massive consequences both personally and in society. And it all begins with these little seeds that Proverbs is warning us, don't go that direction. That path is destruction. Come back to the path of wisdom. You see, a small turn away from the path of life is a shortcut to the path of destruction. This is why the Christian life is a life of repentance, a life of constant repentance, a constant turning, readjusting, coming back onto the path of wisdom, coming back onto the way of Jesus. We never arrive, well, we do, not never, we eventually arrive, but in this life, we never arrive, right? We're always having our eyes focused on the destination. We're always pilgrims, always travelers. We're never at home and settled, constantly repenting, constantly turning back to the way of wisdom. We are, friends, sheep who are prone to wander, aren't we? We are sheep who, we start out this direction, and without a shepherd, we end up way over here. And yet, thankfully, we hear from the mouth of Jesus that he is a good shepherd, that he will lay down his life for his sheep. Not only that, but he will leave the 99 to go and get the one. My friend, if you are this person, if you have wandered from the path of wisdom, if you are on the path, that you look back on your life, you say, okay, I can probably see where that started, but man, I didn't know it was going to go here, and here I am, way over here. The good news for you this morning is that Jesus is a good shepherd who pursues his lost sheep. He has not given up on you. He has not said, you got too far from the path, man. Like, I, got to, I got other stuff I got to do. That is his mission, to pursue the lost sheep, to come after you. So the next few weeks, they're, they're about how to walk the path of wisdom, right? 
Um, whether we're talking about money or friendships or even our words, um, we, just a reminder, right? As, as a church, we typically do um, expository series, which are through um, books, verse by verse, right? Um, this is a little bit different one because it's summer and everybody's kind of out of town. Um, so we strategically pick something that's a little bit different. We are in and bound to the scriptures still, but we're going to look over the next few weeks over what does Proverbs say about money, right? And look at all these verses in Proverbs that are about money, our friendships, all of these categories. And this sermon's kind of like that too. We're going to be looking at some themes that we can look out for in Proverbs because I'm going to just lean into my metaphor here and I'm probably going to beat it to death, but just roll with it, okay? If we're talking about directions, right? Proverbs is like a road map. It gives us the path to follow. It gives us the map that we can uh, look at to know which direction we're supposed to go. And yet, if, if we're honest, we don't always have time to pull the map out right, and look and try to figure out. Sometimes there's, there's a turn that's coming up, and if we pull the map out, we're definitely going to miss the turn. So we kind of need a general sense of where we're going. Uh, we'll call this the compass. Sometimes you just need to know, I just need to go north. Right? If I can go north, I can eventually get there. I may not be, may not be the shortest way or the quickest way, but I need to go north. We left off two weeks ago with kind of the true north of Proverbs, which is fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord. This is where we can begin. If, if we are fearing the Lord, seeking to honor the Lord, this is a good place to start. I'm going to look at a couple of carnal directions that, that Proverbs gives us as well. So if we got true north of fear of the Lord, okay, how is it that we fear the Lord? So two carnal directions that Proverbs leans into. One is love and one is justice. If we are pursuing love and pursuing justice, we always know that we're going north, right? We're going the right direction. may not be the quickest way, right? It may not be the most wise way, but we're going to prevent ourselves from going off the path and veering completely out as we go north via love and justice. So Proverbs is going to tell us over and over again, if you want to walk in wisdom, love generously. In other words, it's almost impossible to sin by loving. It's almost impossible to love and sin at the same time. I say almost because we can be confused on what love is, right? Um, and we can deceive ourselves into thinking we're loving. But Proverbs is pretty clear. If we lean into how can I love God and love my neighbor in this situation, we're going to be on the right course. This is Jesus' words to us as well, isn't it? How does he summarize all the law and the prophets? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He says, look, you want to follow the law, do those two things, you're on the right course, you're on the right path. Proverbs tells us this in chapter 10, verse 12, hatred stirs up conflicts, but love covers all offenses. I have a sneaking suspicion that when, first, when Peter wrote 1 Peter, he had this verse in mind. You probably hear that in the New Testament if you're a careful Bible reader. Above all, maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. In other words, you can goof up in a lot of ways. But if you're seeking to love God and love your neighbor in your choices, right, in your decisions, in your life, you're going to cover up a lot of those goofs. You're going to avoid a lot of those pitfalls. And is this countercultural or what? I mean, do we do this naturally as individuals, as a society, or do we lean into love God and love neighbor in our decisions? Heck no, right? This is not us. I mean, even our, our politics are built not on advocating for issues, but on destroying the other person. Right? This is the whole idea behind what we, not the whole idea, this is what we often lean into, right? Where we seek to, instead of advocate for what we believe, we just want to own or destroy the other side, and we get satisfaction out of that. 
But you see, love would cover that, wouldn't it? If we sought to love the other person, convince them, yes, but love them, we would avoid a lot of the pitfalls that we run into. It seems like a lot of times we imagine that we're going to get to heaven and the Lord's going to say, yeah, well done, good and faithful servant. But man, I wish you'd have shared that meme that dehumanized that politician. If you'd have done that, you'd get an extra crown. We live this way, and of course it sounds silly, but we live this way, don't we? Because we are lacking in love for God and for neighbor. You see, life is full of complex issues that require inordinate amounts of wisdom. But if we seek the way of love, if we chart the course on the path of love, we can avoid all kinds of stumbles. And yet, this is not to say that Proverbs is some kind of milk toast sentimentality booklet. Right? It's not some squishy, malleable book that just gets us to all you need is love, right? Great song, bad theology. Justice and righteousness are a complement to love in the book of Proverbs. You hear it in Proverbs 8.20. I love this verse. I walk in the ways of righteousness along the paths of justice. Do you hear that? They're synonyms. He uses them in the same paths, ways, justice, righteousness. They're the same thing, according to Solomon. Or at least they are so closely related that they can't be separated, according to Solomon. And yet, how much do we often want to do one or the other? Right? A lot of us, we either lean into righteousness, what I mean by righteousness is personal righteousness, right? or we lean into justice, which is public and in community. Right? We either do one or the other very well, and we dismiss the converse. And yet, one without the other, justice and righteousness alone, they're merely performative. Right? They're, they're only something that we're performing. It's not a part of us unless we have both. Give you an example, right? Somebody who posts a ton of posts on Instagram, Facebook, all about ending sex trafficking, right? End sex trafficking. I'm all about this. You know, I got the tape over my mouth, all that good stuff. I'm all about justice. And yet, alone in my room, watch shows of pornography. There's no righteousness accompanying the justice, right? I believe in this theory out here in terms of society, but it doesn't affect my personal character. This is justice without righteousness. And we can do the, the converse as well, right? So someone who preaches vehemently about the filth of pornography, right, cares a lot about personal righteousness, and yet covers up abuse in his church. Cares nothing about executing it publicly in terms of justice, doing the right thing by other people. Right? Only cares about personal morality and has no care for how it affects others in his life. It's righteousness without justice, and yet Proverbs consistently points us to the need for both. We must have righteousness and justice because God is the defender of the oppressed. Because God is the defender of the oppressed. My kids often utter these words, that's not fair. You heard this one? And what do we as parents say to them? Life's not fair, right? And boy, that sounds wise and it feels good to say, right? And there's some truth there, right? Because of the brokenness of the world, life is not fair. There's an important lesson for our kids to learn. My kids have heard it before. And yet, I, I caught myself saying that the other day, and I kind of reflected on it as I'm prone to do. And you know, I was thinking, you know what? There, there's a, a goodness there in the, the mind and heart of a child that's reflecting on justice and a hunger for justice. And that's, that's something worth cultivating, isn't it? Something I hope my, my kids and I hope you don't lose. That is, when we see injustice in the world, it should give us as much repulsion as when we see unrighteousness. 
when we see things that are not just or not right or not fair, this is not the way the world's supposed to be. And so we can affirm that in our kids and in our own minds. Right? This is not the way Christ designed the world. This is not the way of the kingdom of Jesus. This is not the way of the gospel. Injustice is a result of sin, and it should be something that we are repulsed by and seek to remedy, just as unrighteousness is something that we ought to be repulsed by, but not just stay there, right? Seek to remedy, call people to repentance for. So we also tell our kids, right, nobody's perfect. Right? If they say, some, say something about their brother, right, he did this, well, nobody's perfect, but we don't leave it there, do we? Because if my kids start swinging a baseball bat and hit each other in the head in the backyard and come in and they're bleeding, and I'm like, sorry, bro, nobody's perfect. He was mad at you. Right? That's not what we do as parents, nor should we, because we care about righteousness. So as Christians, we don't just shrug our shoulders at injustice. That's, look, that's just how the world is, right? It's broken. No, we take the sin of the world and the sin of injustice, and we use it to point to the gospel of Jesus just as we take unrighteousness and use it to point to the gospel of Jesus. You see, lack of justice and equity is evidence not of the wisdom of God, but of the wisdom of the world. And Proverbs, we saw a couple weeks ago in chapter 1, verse 3, is given for receiving prudent instruction in righteousness, justice, and integrity. And this is what I love about Proverbs. It doesn't just give us theory. So, so often we hear so much about justice, and we get these categories in our mind, right? What is justice? What's not? Proverbs has some interest in those questions. What it does more often, though, and it hurts, what it does more often is it uses these images to point us to a mirror of ourselves. So it gives us these verbal pictures, right? And then it asks us, so assess yourself. So let me do it for you. And again, this is Proverbs, not me. So blame the Holy Spirit. Proverbs 17, chapter 5. The one who mocks the poor insults his maker, and the one who re rejoices over calamity will not go unpunished. All right, so you can hear, we can hear that, right? And it's easy for me to hear that and say, all right, that's, that's, that's good. Yeah, we shouldn't do that. What Proverbs is asking us to do is to say, so is there any way that you mock the poor? Is there any way that I look at a poor person and think, well, they could do better? Well, at least I'm not that guy, right? Is there any way that I rejoice in calamity when my enemies suffer, right? Is there any way that I say, yes, it's going badly for that one hurts. That's what Proverbs is meant to do, right? Not just tell us how the world is, but tell us how we are. Tell us how we're veering off of the path. Show us things in our heart. Before we get so far off that the damage is done, allow us to see closer to our hearts, closer to my heart. In other words, to love the unborn, to love the immigrant, to love the single mom, is to choose not to just use them as political pawns to score points against the other side but to fight for justice on their behalf. In other words, to do what God does, to show up, to advocate, and to sacrifice. To show up, to advocate, and to sacrifice. This is what God did for us. This is what Christ did for us. You see, in the gospel of Jesus, love and justice are two sides of the same coin. Or as we just sang, love and mercy embrace in the cross. Proverbs 16.6 gives us a little point to this. It says, iniquity is atoned for by loyalty and faithfulness. One turns from evil by the fear of the Lord. In other words, atoning, that is justice, Jesus atones for sin through love. He takes justice and He takes love and He shows us clearly 
that these two things are not at odds with one another. They embrace as Jesus atones for our sin in an act of love. Tim Keller said before, we often lean into one or the other, right? Justice or justification. In other words, we like one and we're not a big fan of the other. Right? Some, people, some people like to talk a lot about justice and are a little more shy about talking about justification. Right? Some people are really eager to talk about justification or a little hesitant to talk about justice. And Keller makes a very good point, I think. Jesus cares about both. So much so that he went to the cross to die on our behalf to atone for our sin because he cares about justification. He cares about your justification and my justification. He has made us right with God. He said, it is finished. If you sit here this morning covered by the blood of Christ, you are justified. If you sit here this morning guilty, you can be justified by the blood of Christ. You can be made right with God. And he cares so much about justice that he came with the mission to do what? To set the captive free. This is what he's done for us, isn't it? We were slaves to sin. And he has set us free. We love because he first loved us. We seek justice because Jesus justified us. great example of this is a guy named Gary Haugen. You've probably never heard of him. He worked for the the State Department a number of years ago. um, And he worked on the the case of Rwanda, if you remember uh, the genocide that happened in in the country of Rwanda. And his job was to to assess the human rights violations uh, that occurred in Rwanda uh, and to assess the the punishments that should be coming down for the leaders who allowed and um, not only allowed but but did those human rights violations. As he worked on this case, he he came to the conclusion that his work there was beneficial, but he could be a better use if he started a faith-based organization that would work in multiple countries to advocate for justice for those who are oppressed and vulnerable. And he started what is called now International Justice Mission. International Justice Mission. And Gary Haugen, they're most famous for, if you may have seen some videos, but they're most famous for their raids on uh, sex slavery brothels. And so what they do, they employ attorneys who are well-trained in uh, all the legalities of all these different countries, right? And they also employ some guys who kind of function as muscle in these areas. And they bring the attorneys with the papers and the muscle, right? And they come into these brothels and they shut them down. And in doing so, they free women and children who are vulnerable and captive to the world of sex slavery and sex trafficking. You see, as a believer, Gary Haugen saw what was happening knew it was unjust, knew the gospel called him to action, and therefore moved to action. But such a radical commitment to love and justice is not simply the work of lawyers and nonprofits. Right? This isn't just the work of those who know the law, right? those who are in power in politics. The way of wholeness, of godliness, of flourishing is open to us all. It's open to you and it's open to me. And the good news is the only thing it requires is everything. You see, the way of life requires our full self. Requires our full self. Look back in Proverbs chapter 4 with me. Solomon gives his son some advice, and he uses all these different body parts to give his advice. Did you catch it as we were reading? Do not lose... Well, let me start with this one in verse 20. My son, pay attention to my words. Listen closely to my sayings. He says, listen, right, with your ears, closely to my sayings. What he's getting at here um, is this idea of, again, we're back in the the plane of discipleship, 
I read a book a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Justin and the Elders made me take a, a mini sabbatical, and I'm, I'm grateful for it. I picked up this book that was on my shelf for a long time, and I hadn't read it yet. Um, it was man, by a man named Eugene Peterson. It's called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. Phenomenal book. I think my favorite part of it is the title. A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. What a fantastic description this is of the Christian life, isn't it? A long obedience going in the same direction, on the path of righteousness. So Solomon's first advice to us and to his son in how to stay on this path is to listen, to use our ears to listen. That is, those of us who are as spiritually, directionally challenged as I am physically, directionally challenged, right? who always seem to be getting off the path of wisdom and righteousness and goodness, the first thing we can do is listen to others. Right? We hear this in James 1.19 as well. This you know, my beloved brethren. Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Man, I'm so often the other one. Right? I'm quick to speak, quick to anger, and slow to hear. And James says, in order to stay on the path of wisdom, we've got to flip that. We've got to be the ones who listen well, speak when needed, but do so slowly where our trigger finger is not happy when it comes to our tongue. Instead, we're eager to listen and hear and understand first, and then we're ready to, to speak, not in anger, not to heighten the temperature, but to bring words of peace, restoration, and boldness. Second thing he says is, guard your heart, in verse 23. Guard your heart above all else, for it is the source of life. We guard our heart because the reality is we are what we love. We are defined by what we love. Our heart is the center of our affections. And if that's true, what we love is what we spend time doing, what we spend time working on, what we spend money and energy to accumulate, right? This is us. This is who we are. How many of us spend our time and money and energy accumulating things that at the end of the day are, don't really matter, number one, and number two, are not good for us to stay on the path of life and wisdom? They're not helpful. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. So I have a question for you. What are the habits of your life that help you remain pure in heart, remain on the path of life? What are the habits that you've built into your day, your week, your month that guard your heart from evil and that build a heart that loves the things that it needs to love? Where do your time and energy and money go? Do they go merely to social media or entertainment or toys? None of these things are evil, but they can easily distract us so that we don't notice we're drifting. Right? We're distracting ourselves in such a way that we can't even tell that we're drifting off of the path until we're way over here and Christ is way over here. We must guard our hearts. Thirdly, tame your tongue. Tame your tongue. Our words reveal our hearts. You say, look, I'm just a blunt person. Maybe. Or maybe that reveals something about a blunt heart. We want our hearts to be softened edges, right? We want our words that pour forth to be words of, of healing and grace and truth. 
And yet, I'll be honest, how often do my words reveal a heart that just wants to be seen as clever or spiritual? How often do my words show how impressive that I want to look to other people? And that reveals a heart that is all about myself. Jesus says, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Ouch, man. Why did Jesus do that? And yet we know why he does, because that's exactly what we need to hear, right? It's not how much we fast or what we eat. This stuff isn't the stuff that really is our issue. What our issue is, is the things that are in our heart that are revealed by what comes out of our mouth. Our words reveal what's in our heart, and if we're honest with ourselves, we often don't like what we see there. So Jesus says, do you want to know how holy you are? Right? Don't monitor your behaviors, how often you do the spiritual disciplines. That's fine. He says, record your conversations for the day, and then listen back. Or if you don't want to do that, look back on your conversations for the day. What did my words do today? Did they build up or tear down? This reveals a lot about the condition of our hearts, doesn't it? Fourthly, focus your eyes, Proverbs says. Focus your eyes. Verse 25, let your eyes look forward. Fix your gaze straight ahead. Again, I have a sneaking suspicion that the writer of Hebrews had this verse in mind when he encouraged us to keep our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. Keep our eyes on Christ. How easy is it to look left and right like Peter did, keeping our eyes off of Jesus and find ourselves sinking, or to mix my metaphors, to find ourselves drifting off of the path. And yet, just like Peter, as we set our gaze back on Christ, what happens? Did Jesus say, well, you got way steep, buddy. You got to stay there. No. Right? He was lifted up. Just as we set our eyes back on Christ, he brings us back as the good shepherd. He takes his crook and draws us back onto the path of wisdom, righteousness, and godliness. Set our eyes on Christ. This is where it begins to get really practical and really realistic. right? Because again, like my GPS, I don't know where I'm going. I'm just trusting it. And I'm hoping that it doesn't lead me into a pond. right? I'm just trusting that it's going to tell me where to go, and I'm going to follow that blue line. The good news here is that we don't always have to know exactly what the map says. We just follow our leader. We follow our master. We set our eyes on Christ and go where he is. And then finally, do not turn, verse 27, to the right or to the left. Keep your feet away from evil. My friends, as you set your eyes on Christ, you are focused on the one who has promised, I am the light of the world. Follow me. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We're told so often that in order to get happiness, to get blessedness, to have the good life, to have the life that we see on Instagram, we have to accumulate stuff. We get the dream house, the perfect kids, the successful career. Proverbs continually exposes this as folly, foolishness. Because let's be honest, even the people who get that, don't have very enviable lives. Right? We hear about that on the news every single day. Right? These people that we think have the good life are exposed for not having nearly as good of a life as we suspected that they did. And yet, if we are 
in Christ. We are drinking of His love and His friendship, His promises. We will not lose our way. If you have Christ, we have all we need for the good life. In Him is everything. So take our eyes, take your feet, take your heart, take your ears, give them to Jesus. Our whole selves, right? Don't just give your eyes to Jesus and keep your feet and your heart to yourselves. Don't just give your heart to Jesus and keep your feet and your hands for yourself. Jesus demands it all and in exchange gives the life a plenty. A life of flourishing. A life of abundance. Romans 12, 1-2 says it this way, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you might discern. Do you hear discern wisdom? What is good, pleasing, and perfect to the will of God. My friend, if you are here and your heart is cold, your feet are wandering, your eyes are distracted, Solomon and with him Christ warns you, you are on the path to disaster. Have you turned to the right or to the left? Are you stuck in habitual sin that you see no path out of? Or maybe it's not that serious yet. Maybe you haven't yet gotten to the catastrophic failure, but you're a victim of discipleship drift. And the Spirit's bringing conviction that as you've lost your firmness of foot, as you've lost the focus of your eyes, you've begun to drift off the path. And you haven't yet reached catastrophic failure, but that's the trajectory. And they're calling you back. As we take the Lord's Supper in just a moment, this provides us an opportunity to see Jesus' sacrifice with fresh eyes. To see what He's done for us. To take it into our very selves so that we can respond in kind. That we can take up our cross and follow Him. That we can kill our sin. That we can love radically. That we can be hungry for justice because we know that resurrection is on the other side. We trust in His resurrection as the foretaste of what's coming for us. So we have the motivation to press on, our eyes focused on Jesus, until the day that He raises us again. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are grateful this morning for Your words from Proverbs. We're thankful that You've given us access to wisdom that is, Lord, not the ways that we naturally go. We confess that so much about Your wisdom in Proverbs is foreign to us. Lord, often it feels as though it's impractical. Though you are focusing on the things that um, are not important to us, we recognize in the face of that mirror, Father, that it's not because of a lack in your wisdom, it's because of a lack in ours. So we pray, Lord, that you will draw us back onto the path of life. That you will give us a hunger and thirst for righteousness. Lord, that we would be a people who care as much about our sin as we do the sin that we see in the world, and we would care as much about the sin we see in the world as we do about ours. Lord, that you would keep us from folly, and most of all, that you would help us to fix our eyes on Christ, that we would follow the light of the world, knowing that that cannot be hidden. Lord, we pray that you would draw more into this path of wisdom and wholeness, the path of resurrection, knowing that you give new life to sheep who are lost. 
As we take the supper, Father, we ask that you would um, nourish us, Lord, supernaturally, that you would uh, fill us with your goodness, that you would satisfy us with your love, that we would sense your presence here, and that we would remember what you've done for us. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen.